Yeah, so what I'd like to do um, is to offer a talk on self-compassion, as Nico said, um, more of a hybrid sort of science dharma talk, uh, and then have half an hour for comments or questions. And during that time, I would also invite anyone who wanted to share any of their um, direct experience of the meditation we just did. Um, we can also do that at that time. Um, yeah, so uh, before I start, I do like to uh, give a shout out to Kristen Neff, whom many of you probably are aware of. She actually, um, excuse me, I'm fighting with this uh, microphone a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah, so she um, basically is the leading pioneer of self-compassion in terms of the science. Uh, self-compassion is not new. Uh, self-compassion has been with us forever, just as compassion has been with us forever as a way of uh, managing difficult experience. Compassion has always been inner and outer and the Buddhist tradition, but also actually all traditions have um, emphasize that the way we care for ourselves should be a foundation of how we uh, care for others. The dilemma in that regard is that in modern times, and research certainly supports this, um, people tend to be a lot more compassionate to others than they are to themselves. Uh, so therefore, um, we need to connect with how we feel toward others in order to find a way back to ourselves, to actually be kind to ourselves. The research shows that 80% um, of us are actually kind, 78% uh, are kinder to others than ourselves. 6% are kinder to themselves than to others. And about 16% are just about in the middle, you know. So we're not very good at being kind to ourselves. And, and uh, I have taught self-compassion all over the world on all continents except Antarctica. And I can tell you, everybody has their own explanation for cultural explanation for why we're not very kind to ourselves. You know, in, in China, they talk about Confucianism. In South America, they say, well, you know, Catholic guilt, you know, in Minnesota, they say, well, it's that whole, you know, Protestant ethic thing, just keep on working, you know. <laughs> so there's, everyone has a kind of um, reason, cultural reason why they're, we're kinder to um, uh, others than to ourselves. But I actually think the reason is probably physio physiological, that we're actually hardwired. And I will talk a little bit more about that in the future. But at any rate, um, shout out to Kristen Neff, who started the whole research field on uh, self-compassion. And she and I met in 2008, and then we've been working pretty hard for the last 10 years uh, to refine the eight-week mindful self-compassion training program. As Nico said, uh, we created the uh, Center for Mindful Self-Compassion out in San Diego. And the program has really been taught to probably over 100,000 people around the world. And there are, there are at least 1,000 active MSC teachers all over the place. So there's just an enormous amount of interest in self-compassion. And I think the reason is that um, 
uh, it's kind of uh, being carried along on the heels of mindfulness. And indeed, in my own experience, uh, that's how it happened. So I can share with you just a little bit of how I got interested in self-compassion. Uh, so I first learned mindfulness actually in a hermitage in Sri Lanka when I was 25. Um, and now I'm uh, 67. So I thought for sure I'd be enlightened by now. <laughs> so that's a good reason for self-compassion right there. <laughs> Um, but at any rate, um, uh, so I learned self-compassion way back when. And then after graduate school, I came here to Cambridge and met uh, a lot of uh, therapists who were also uh, practicing mindfulness meditation and interested in integrating it in psychotherapy. And we did that um, for quite a few years. And then in 2005, we wrote a book called Mindfulness and Psychotherapy, and after that point, I was kind of obliged to do a lot of um, speaking, particularly at a, the first annual, now 12 coming up, annual um, meditation and psychotherapy uh, course at Harvard Medical School. So there was a lot of speaking activity, which brought to a head a problem that I had for 20 years, which was um, a real dread of public speaking. And I was once talking to a group of um, psychologists <laughs> and when I got up to the podium, I couldn't say a word. And I was standing there, you know, <laughs> somebody in the back of the room yells out, take a breath. <laughs> it was a rather humiliating moment, I can tell you. Anyhow, <laughs> um, um, but, uh, um, I, I continued at it, and um, and at one point I um, was went on a retreat at IMS, and I was sort of fussing about my usual difficulties. And um, Sharon Salzberg, I had an interview with Sharon, and she I didn't tell her precisely what was going on, and she didn't say precisely this, but the message I got was, Chris why don't you just sit on your cushion here at IMS and just love yourself? I think she could see that my mind was just way too active. Just say things like, you know, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy. So I did that and um, lo and behold, I became way more uh, mindful. Uh, I was, you know, basically the the confusion and the threat state kind of passed and I could see things more clearly. I was way more in touch with what was going on inside as well. And, um, and so I decided this can't be a bad thing. So then I started to practice loving kindness meditation every day. And I can tell you for those 20 years that I was suffering from public speaking anxiety, I never did practice loving kindness meditation because I always thought it was a little cheesy, you know, Actually, the very first meditation I learned was transcendental meditation. And in that practice, you use a mantra which has no meaning. So here in loving kindness meditation, words have meaning. <laughs> and, you know, just, and I just always like kind of awareness rather than, you know, directly cultivating warmth. So I had a real bias against the thing. But 
lo and behold, it completely changed my life because when I went to this first Harvard conference and got up to speak after practicing loving kindness meditation for four months, um, uh, the usual fear rose with me, but um, uh, there was a new voice in the back of my head. This is the one that I've been practicing, you know, a loving voice saying, oh, Chris, may you be safe, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, like that. And then I looked out over the crowd and I just had so much love for the audience. You know, I just, hmm. usually if you have public speaking anxiety, the audience is the enemy, you know, because they can judge you. They can like see your faults and think them. <laughs> but uh, that, um, so anyhow, the first thing I learned was from this experience was that number one, when you practice self-compassion, it very quickly turns into compassion for others. The other thing I learned is my public speaking anxiety was actually a shame disorder. It wasn't an anxiety disorder. One thing I neglected to say was um, throughout these 20 years after getting a PhD in clinical psychology, I was technically an expert in anxiety disorders. I had also written a dissertation on anxiety disorders. And so I tried everything in the book, nothing worked. But loving kindness meditation healed me. You know, and I really haven't had too much public speaking anxiety since then. And what was also interesting is that, you know, self-compassion meditation addressed the shame, the underlying shame, which is the fear of being found out as a fraud or incompetent or stupid or whatever it may be. It actually addressed the shame without even me, without even knowing I had a shame problem. Because if you say to somebody, Let's take a look at your shame. <laughs> They're going to say, well, let's not. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but if you say to somebody, I wonder if we can start being like, you know, if you could start being just a little bit nicer to yourself. It's usually like, yeah, that's not so easy either, but it goes down better, you know. So that's a beautiful thing about self-compassion, actually, is that it's a kind of two-way street. On the one hand, you're enhancing self-kindness. On the other hand, you're decreasing self-criticism. On the one hand, you're enhancing a sense of common humanity. On the other hand, you're decreasing a sense of isolation. And on the third, the third main component of self-compassion is mindfulness or kind of a spacious loving awareness. And the opposite of that is kind of over-identification with what we're feeling and also rumination. So, when we're, when, we're kind to, when we're kind to ourselves, we actually decrease all these negative states. And the research is absolutely clear about this. There are now 3,500 studies on the research since Kristen's first study in 2003. And it is overwhelmingly clear that self-compassion is a fundamental factor in, in mental health and emotional well-being. It's good for... Oh, it's good for, you know, um, it's good. Uh, let me, it, um, it's good. It's correlated with happiness, life satisfaction, coping. Emotional resilience is probably the main message from all that research. Emotional intelligence decreases in anxiety, depression, stress, decreases in shame. You can see why therapists are crazy about this now. Because basically, if, if a client can learn uh, self-compassion and psychotherapy, it, it doesn't matter what kind of therapy they're doing. It doesn't matter what their problem is. 
since it's a fundamental uh, factor for mental health, people get better. It also uh, leads to improved physical health, uh, self-compassion, improves the immune system, um, it increases healthy behaviors such as exercise, balanced diet. And it's also really good for relationships, you know? Some people think there, there are a number of um, myths about self-compassion. For example, that if I practice, it's gonna, it's like self-pity. But actually we find in the research that people who are high in self-compassion are less self-absorbed and actually they can, they can see things in, they, they don't ruminate as much. They see things in perspective. Some people worry if I self, practice self-compassion, I'll become weak. But actually we find it's a, it's a powerful factor for emotional resilience. In fact, um, veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, the ones who had high self-compassion, but still a lot of trauma, they did not get post-traumatic stress disorder, not nearly as much. So self-compassion is a way of working with bad experience such that it doesn't become, you know, uh, doesn't get baked into our experience. Some people worry self-compassion is selfish, uh, but actually it increases compassion for others, which is what I learned at that Harvard conference. Some people think it's self-indulgent, which means I'm just going to sit around and eat chocolate ice cream all day if I'm self-compassionate. But as you might imagine, that's not actually a nice thing to do for yourself. <laughs> Maybe once a year, I don't know, but not regularly. Um, so basically people who are self-compassionate, they're able to balance long and short-term benefits. And, and another thing people are concerned about is it will make them lazy or demotivated. But we found actually that self-compassion increases motivation. And that's really easy to imagine because um, imagine you're trying to do anything and you have a coach and you have a, like a critical bitter coach, you know, that'll suck the energy right out of you. But imagine you have a coach who loves you and gets you and encourages you and smiles and takes joy in your achievements. You're going to be more motivated. So we actually find that people who are high in self-compassion are more motivated, not less. So there are a lot of resistances, you might say, to self-compassion, but it's a really, it's a really good thing. So anyhow, the title of this talk is um, Best Friends Forever, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion. So um, when uh, mindfulness is in full bloom, like when we are really, really mindful, um, and then we experience some misfortune we will probably be really, really compassionate with ourselves. So we can say when one, when compassion and mindfulness, either of them are in full bloom, like there's a, when you have a lot of compassion, you will inevitably also be very mindful. You'll have that kind of perspective and a kind of curiosity and tenderness and ability to be with your experience when you're full of compassion. And you'll also probably be, have a really warm heart when you're full of mindfulness because, because we actually, um, it's one thing just to see our experience, but when there's a kind of love of our experience, then we really see our experience, you know? So mindfulness in full bloom has a lot of warmth in it. And same with compassion has a lot of mindfulness. We like to say space 
Space creates warmth, warmth creates space, you know? So they're together. However, what happens in life is that actually most of us are not, you know, 100% mindful or compassionate. Hardly ever, actually, but especially as we're growing, <clears throat> it's helpful to know, ah, if I were to put a little spice into this or some new ingredient into my practice, what would be helpful to me right now? In other words, um, what I learned from my experience with public speaking anxiety is that, is that um, sometimes we're in the grip of intense and disturbing emotions such that we cannot hold our experience in a mindful way. Sometimes, first, we need to be held. And that means somebody holding us in a compassionate embrace or we holding ourselves in a compassionate embrace. So sometimes when we're, in the, when, when we're experiencing shame, despair, grief, difficulties like that, first, we need to hold ourselves before we can hold the experience. And that is where uh, mindfulness and self-compassion are best friends. They, we need both. So mindfulness technically is loving awareness of moment to moment experience, whereas self-compassion is loving awareness of the experiencer, of the person. Compassion is very personal. It's not just a warm attitude toward moment to moment experience. It's a warm attitude toward a self. And even though in wisdom traditions and in the Vipassana tradition, we, we sometimes freak out over the idea of self because it is kind of the source of most suffering. <clears throat> we actually find that compassion, just like mindfulness dismantles the self by seeing the component parts of perception and selfing and, and also by breaking it down into moment to moment experience, we dismantle the self and get freedom with compassion, we dissolve the self through warmth. And you know what this is like. When, when you're suffering and somebody who loves you sits down with you, holds your hand and talks to you in a really compassionate way, suddenly you settle down and you can actually see what's going on in your life. In other words, you're, you're, and you'll be less self-absorbed because you've been heard. So we can do this for ourselves. So both compassion and mindfulness actually reduce the, um, the tyranny of the self, but they do it in a different way. One dismantles, the other dissolves. So um, mindfulness is loving awareness of experience. Compassion is loving awareness of the experiencer. Mindfulness is interesting. It says, what do I know? Or what, do, what am I experiencing right now? Compassion asks the question, what do I need? What do I need? So therefore, in that little meditation that we did in the beginning, I invited you to ask yourself that question. Huh, what do I need? Maybe I don't need anything, but if I do, what is it? What do I need? And then to connect with the in-breath, which is our, the very first breath of our lives, right? Everybody around you when you were born was really happy when you breathed in for yourself. You can do that for the rest of your life. People will still be really happy if you breathe in for yourself. You will be more present with them. I promise. <laughs> so 
anyhow, it comes from the, from the question, what do I need? Yeah. Um, and mindfulness also, this is really interesting. Mindfulness is a, and we know this, especially in the psychotherapy realm, is a powerful factor in emotion regulation. But it does emotion regulation through regulating awareness and attention. So if we're really upset, we can focus on the soles of our feet or just the breath. Or if we are struggling, we can also open the field of awareness such that the struggle feels a little smaller in the larger context. This is how we regulate emotion with mindfulness. Self-compassion regulates emotion with care and connection. So, uh, and this is actually how our emotions have been regulated since we were very young. Uh, when, um, when, when you were a child and you had a nightmare, for example, you might crawl into bed with a parent for comfort. You know, the parent didn't say, you know, focus on this or that. Parents said, come here, honey. That's how we do it. That's how we've been doing it. You know, actually, the attentional faculty is only fully online in the human brain at 27 years old. When it is, it's an extraordinary power. It's like a laser light. It's amazing. However, it's good to know that that's not the only way of working with emotions. We can also work with our emotions with care and connection. And that's precisely what self-compassion does. Okay. Um, and then lastly, in terms of some of the, dis, you know, um, distinctions between mindfulness and self-compassion, generally mindfulness is considered calming and self-compassion is considered warming. One is calming and one is warming. But as I said, in actual practice, and especially when we have a lot of mindfulness and compassion, they're really quite the same. So look at them as like a dance in the relative world, in the relative realm, it's like two sides of a dance. But as the dancers start to merge, it becomes like one being. <laughs> and that's when they're best friends forever. You get it? But there's another reason why mindfulness is super important for self-compassion practice. And that is there's a tendency when we practice self-compassion to use self-compassion to make bad feelings go away. Like taking a handful of self-compassion and throwing it at sadness or anger, you know, that'll make it go away. And frankly, people also use mindfulness in the same way, but it's even easier to use self-compassion to kind of as a form of resistance of moment to moment experience. This is not helpful. This is actually antithetical to what this entire path is all about. The path is about being with what is. And when we are practicing self-compassion, it's especially important to open to what is. Otherwise it's just sugar coating and it's very frustrating and it doesn't work. So the Buddha was very clear at the outset, you know, he said, basically, you know, everybody seeks happiness and freedom from suffering. That's not a problem. Suffering is a part of life. That's a given. You don't want that much suffering, of course. And he spent a lot of effort to try to figure that one out. But basically, he said is what he more or less said is, you know, go ahead and 
yes, we want to eliminate suffering, but how? How do we eliminate suffering? Not whether, but how? And the, the way that he gave was basically learning to embrace it, embrace it through many different strategies. So we have, similarly with self-compassion, it's the, it's the intention behind the practice is absolutely essential. And so we have a central paradox, which is really worth keeping in mind. And that is when we suffer, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. So this is really quite amazing. You know, it implies a kind of radical acceptance of what is, but it also implies a kind of spontaneity of heart. The same kind of tenderness that you would feel toward a young child who is suffering, you know. Imagine you have a child or a grandchild who has the flu and it's a one day flu. I mean, sorry, it's a five day flu and the kid is now in day one of the flu. And your child is in bed and saying, oh, mommy, I have a headache and I'm cold. And, you know, what do you do? You're just super nice to the kid because that's what you are moved to do. You, you would not think about doing anything else. So um, even though you know that what you're doing is not going to remove the flu, you're just responding to the suffering. So that, that same kind of spontaneous quality of heart, we can actually have toward ourselves. And not only that, we need to. And the reason we need to is because all of us have the flu. And it's a lifelong flu. And it is called human suffering. Every one of us right now, if you look in your experience, there is stress, maybe less than yesterday or maybe more than yesterday, but it's there. This is part of the human condition. It's called suffering. John Kabat-Zinn reframed the Buddha's suffering as stress. Rightly so. It's with us, right? So how do we work with that? Do we try with our last breath to kind of you know, finesse it and make it go away, it's not going to happen. But what would it be like when we struggle not to immediately go to war with what's happening, get into a drive state where we're going to figure out how to fix this and fix that. We can do this for the rest of our lives. The Buddha said, basically, don't do this for the rest of your lives. Do something different. Be with what is in a particular way. And the particular way is with a lot of awareness and a lot of kindness. That's the main basic formula. And this is why I say mindfulness and self-compassion are best friends forever. It's actually mindfulness and compassion, but compassion is both inner and outer. And what we do in our culture and in most cultures in the world is we exclude the inner part and we only do the outer part. And we do that at tremendous peril. And the research is super clear about that, that if we are not also kind to ourselves, we will suffer and we will make ourselves vulnerable to all sorts of ills. So what is self-compassion? Definitionally, it's, uh, 
there's an informal definition, which is treating ourselves with the same kindness and understanding as we would treat a dear friend when things go wrong. And, you know, sometimes we say, well, maybe I'm, I'm not so nice to my friends. Well, that's true, you know. Well, then think, okay, how about a really innocent being, you know? Human beings are very compassionate toward innocent beings, dolphins, infants, you know, right? So what, we're, what self-compassion is, is, simple, is a simple U-turn. Next time you see a U-turn sign, let it perhaps be a reminder, you know, oh, self-compassion, you know, just like if you need, just like when you notice yourself breathing in, ah, I matter too, right? This is, this is not a selfish act. This is simply including ourselves in the circle of compassion. Just including. This is very humble. In fact, it's more humble than systematically excluding ourselves. <laughs> if we allow ourselves to be just like everybody else, and we are uniformly kind to ourselves and others, this is nothing selfish about it. Right? So the question is then, how do I treat a friend? So let me ask you, say you have a friend that's suffering, has failed, it feels inadequate, someone you know. What might be your reaction? My, for example, what might you say? Would you be speaking from your heart or would you be speaking from your head if you really love this person? What tone would you have? What would your behaviors be? Would you be rushed? Would you be patient? How do you treat a friend when a friend is struggling? And now just thinking about maybe sometime when you experienced some uh, hardship, maybe you failed, maybe you suffered, you felt inadequate. What went on inside for you quite spontaneously? What was your reaction? Did you feel kindness or did you feel threat? Was your language critical or was your language encouraging? Did you isolate yourself or did you feel, ah, this is part of the human experience? How did you treat yourself? Sometime when something went wrong. Right? So for most of us, there is a difference. Uh, I once heard the Dalai Lama say, you know, the reason why compassion works, <clears throat> compassion for others works is because it's not you. <laughs> In other words, the person suffering, yes, but it's not your suffering. And this is actually really true from a physiological point of view, because when we are suffering, we experience a threat response. Inside, we get, you know, an activation of adrenaline and cortisol, that's a threat response. Um, but 
when uh, somebody else is suffering, we don't necessarily have a threat response. We might have a care response. That's actually a completely different physiology, you know? And, uh, and so the interesting thing is, is when people are really close to us, like a child or a best friend, sometimes we're really not very nice to that person when they suffer. And that's because there's not enough space. Whereas, and, and in relationship to ourselves, also not much space. So here again is why we need mindfulness. We need mindfulness in order to have perspective, some space, to be able to say something like, oh, this is hard, or, oh, yeah, I'm really angry, or, whew, behind my angry, my anger, I am so sad, or, Anyhow, any kind of internal awareness, even where, oh, wow, I can notice my chest is tightening up. You know, to, just to be able to say this, you know, name it and you tame it. You get perspective on it. It actually downregulates the threat response just by being able to be mindful. Similarly, when we are kind to ourselves, we also downregulate the threat response. And it's hard to do for ourselves because there isn't as much space. But mindfulness gives us space. So we say that the foundation of self-compassion practice is mindfulness practice. It's necessary so that we don't use self-compassion as a slick form of manipulation to drive emotions go away, to make emotions go away. But also we do this because we want um, to have some helpful perspective, some space out of which we can then practice self-compassion. So I, I just like to say a few more things um, and give you a little experience. You know, around the world, uh, there are three universal expressions of compassion. And you might know what they are. One is a warm gaze, you know, some people love the Dalai Lama's eyes because they're often really compassionate. The other is soothing touch. You know, there have been studies where people have stuck a hand through a hole in a box and one person touching the other person. And we are really good at being able to distinguish um, emotions by the way that we're touched. We know what a compassionate touch feels like. And the third universal expression of compassion is gentle vocalizations. You know, like, oh, oh, ah, mm, rather than barking, you know? <laughs> so I'd like to do a little exercise with you, um, which uh, that is to say to do this little U-turn together. You know, um, so if you don't mind, it just take a few minutes. Once again, closing your eyes. And I'd like to invite you to visualize the face or the eyes of someone who um, has very compassionate eyes or who looks at you with a lot of tenderness, even love. And that could be a little baby, it could be a dog, it could be a partner when they're in a good mood, it could be 
a, a photograph of somebody who just every time you see that photograph, you you can feel the love. So visualize some being. And in particular, the face and the eyes. And take a little while just to uh, be the recipient of that gaze, to soak it in. Notice how it feels to be in the, the recipient of such a gaze, to be seen in this way. How does it feel in your body? So this is a U-turn. This is self-compassion. Maybe you even notice your physiology changes, you know? Maybe you notice a little warming. Possible you also notice a little fear. Some people, maybe 10% feel fear. Like, oh, am I worthy? Okay, and now I would like you, if you don't mind, to <coughs> place your hand over your heart or some other place. And to gently <coughs> rub that part of your body in a compassionate way as you might somebody else. You know, you could rub your arm, you could rub your cheek, you could rub your heart, you could rub your belly. Rub gently touching or rubbing a part of your body that communicates compassion to you and allow yourself to receive it. And notice how that feels. And now, finally, I would like you to just think for a moment. Right now, if somebody were to whisper into my ear words that I need to hear right now. And when I hear those words, I would probably say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. What words would they be? What is it that you would love to hear right now? And when you hear it, your heart would just rest. What are those words? Now I'd like you to, over and over, just like loving kindness phrases, but also with a, with a, warm, and a warm tone, I would like you to speak those words to yourself silently over and over, letting them roll through your mind. 
maybe even landing inside of you someplace. These, are, these words are blessings. And notice what that's like for you. Are the, can you feel the words? Does it make you feel uh, uncomfortable? Or do the words really land? Are the words kind of bouncing off? Maybe it feels foolish. Just noticing the way it is for you, but still continuing to offer yourself the words you need to hear. Okay, and now before we open our eyes, let's just bring it all together. I'd like you right now to visualize those eyes, that face of compassion. Offer your, offering yourself touch, compassionate touch. And allowing yourself again to hear those words spoken in your mind in a very tender way, just like a blessing. Oh, honey. Okay, and before you open your eyes, just knowing that anytime you're in the middle of meditation or in the middle of your daily life and you need a little warmth, this is called loving kindness meditation. It's not only phrases. You can visualize the eyes of a loved one. You can offer yourself some soothing touch. Or you can speak words to yourself that you need to hear. Words that allow your heart to rest. And doing this, all of this, not to drive away how we are feeling, but simply as a tender response to what we're going through. Simply tenderness in the same way you would respond to a beloved child. Natural warmth, allowing the child to go through what the child needs to go through, allowing yourself to experience what you're experiencing, but bathing yourself in kindness because sometimes life is really tough. Now you can slowly open your eyes Thank you for doing that. We can uh, have a little sharing about that in a few moments. I just wanted to share a couple more things before we uh, go on. And that is um, that there are actually uh, two uh, approaches to compassion and to self-compassion. And it's really important to know this. There's a kind of a yin side and a yang side. 
Kristen Neff is going to have a book out in the middle of next year called Fierce Self-Compassion. And it comes at just the right time when we need to step up to work with social injustice and, um, you know, global problems. So sometimes, you know, like the, the metaphor is if a, if a house is burning and you're in it, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to do a yin thing or a yang thing. The yin thing would be to uh, comfort, soothe, and validate your experience. But if you did that, the house would burn down and so would you. Or you can do the yang thing. The yang thing is acting in the world with compassion to protect, to provide, and to motivate. Both the yin and the yang are based in care, you know, like a firefighter who runs into a building to save somebody. Um, this is based, this is out of compassion. Um, and both are very necessary. And actually the yang side per, makes a safe, um, safe fence around our experience so that we can nourish ourselves, but we also need to nourish ourselves so that we will act in the world with, with strength and clarity and authenticity and also sustain our efforts to have uh, to, to uh, correct uh, large global problems such as social injustice, global warming, and so forth. How do we maintain our commitment? We need a lot of yin, but we also need a lot of Young. So it's really important, please, th to think about that, that compassion is not just a soft thing. It can be very fierce, kind of like physiologically, it's like mama bear, you know, the same bear is, you know, super tender with its little one. But when it's threatened, look out, you know, <laughs> I was actually about 30 yards from a bear at the Buddhist at the um, uh, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Oh, my God, it was just eating berries off a tree and I was just walking down the road and all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> this could be dangerous. What if there's a cub around, you know, and I just backed off because the same bear, the same bear <laughs> has fierceness in care. And so also we, we do, but we need to give ourselves permission to do that. Uh, another thing I want to say is that in the last month, there were, <laughs> five articles that came out on self-compassion and COVID, which is kind of interesting. And uh, in particular, um, one study came from Hong Kong, one came from Israel, one came from uh, Spain, one came from Austria, and one came from Iran. Nothing from the U.S., but just gives you an idea of how global this pandemic is. Um, and all, all five studies basically said that self-compassion is associated with um, less sense of threat. So we know very well that self-compassion down-regulates the threat system. It does this by activating the parasympathetic nervous system uh, which is the relaxation response. It also does this by activating parts of the front of the brain that turn off the threat response, you know? So we, we know neurologically and physio physiologically how it works. But now in COVID, we found, the Hong Kong study found that uh, 
people who are high in, in self-compassion felt less threatened by the virus. They were able to go about their lives um, more readily, not feeling threatened as much when they were high in self-compassion. Um, in Israel, they, they um, interviewed or they gave some scales to um, Palestinian and Israeli mothers, uh, uh, pregnant women, and found that they were exploring how much fear do they have of childbirth. And the more self-compassionate they were, the less fear they had of childbirth. Um, uh, The study in Iran was really interesting, and that is they found that people who are high in self-compassion had less fear, but what they also found, and this is, I think we need to tell this to, you know, the social scientists are trying to work on the pandemic. They found that um, uh, the more fear a person had, the less likely they took care of themselves, the less likely they used alcohol gel, the less likely they did hand washing, the more fear they had, the less they abided by pandemic restrictions. Um, And those people who had less fear were also more self-compassionate. So what the Iranian paper said basically is we need to teach people self-compassion so they will have less fear and they will do the right thing for the pandemic. It's interesting. Um, In Spain, they looked at people who were suffering in the first three months of the pandemic, uh, suffering from anxiety, depression, and stress. And they found that people who were self-compassionate had less anxiety, less depression, and less stress. But but this is really interesting for our group this evening. They also, a lot of those people um, meditated and they did different kinds of meditation. They did TM, they did Vipassana, they did other things. So not just mindfulness meditation. And they found that actually whether or not people meditated did not impact um, uh, whether there was a decrease in anxiety, depression, and stress. What decreased it was self-compassion. So this is why in the meditation that we just did, I thought you might like to, if you're not doing this already, taste what it's like to do self-compassion meditation. That is to say, growing uh, to be more self-compassionate will decrease your threat state. It will also decrease anxiety and depression and stress. Meditation alone will not do this, at least according to this Spanish study. But compassion will. And they didn't do self-compassion meditation, but that's actually how we grow in self-compassion by doing mind training with meditation. So that's again, a um, suggestion from this study. Um, And lastly, in Austria, they gave a 14 day online compassion, self-compassion training to women who are having difficulty with eating behavior. And needless to say, many people now are eating more than they usually do and drinking more than they usually do. And they found as a, that what happened with this 14 day online training is that people had less stress overall. They did less stress eating and overall they had healthier habits 
during the periods of isolation. So um, self-compassion is a very good thing uh, for this stressful situation where we are confined and isolated and quarantined and so forth. And the very last thing I wanna say is that there are so many ways to learn self-compassion if you want to learn self-compassion. So for example, you can practice um, uh, like training. You could take like a mindful self-compassion training program. You could do a loving kindness meditation. There are many ways to do it. You can, you can um, learn self-compassion by practicing just um, mindfulness. In other words, not like MBSR, MBCT, or just Vipassana meditation, you will increase your self-compassion level. But your self-compassion level will also increase if you own a dog. If you don't have a dog and you get a dog, you're gonna become more self-compassionate. If you practice yoga, not as a, in a harsh way, but in a kind way, you will in fact increase in self-compassion. If you walk in nature, this study came out of Japan, nature bathing, you will uh, grow in self-compassion. If you go to psychotherapy, you will grow in self-compassion. And if you do random acts of kindness for other people, you will grow in self-compassion. So not only does self-compassion increase our compassion for others, but compassion for others increases our self-compassion. So ultimately, if anybody says, ha, huh, what can I do to increase self-compassion? First question is, what do I need? And if you don't know the answer, then break it down. What do I need to feel safe? What do I need to feel comforted or soothed or validated? What do I need to protect myself? What do I need to provide for myself? What do I need to motivate myself? That's question number one, what do I need? And question number two is, how would I treat a friend in the same situation? just like we did before. How would I treat a friend? And then do the U-turn, okay? That's all I got to say this evening. Thank you so much for your attention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank everybody for your time, my goodness. We've gone a little bit over already and uh, it's been just a real delight to meet with you guys. Let me say this, in, in 19... Um, 87, my psychotherapy office was directly opposite the CIMC space. So every Wednesday I would see from my office when I was seeing clients, people streaming into Dharma talk on Wednesday, you know? I never thought that, you know, so many years later we would be scattered all over the place online that didn't exist at the time. But anyhow, for me, it's a little bit like closing a circle. It's just a great thrill to have been here. And I thank you all for your time and your commitment to uh, practice. And thank you, Nico and CIMC staff for inviting me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.